I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings and specifically chapter 16. Now, the section that I'm actually going to be preaching on is not as long as the section that uh, you have in your folder. I decided, um, yes, have I, am I not? I'm not on. The uh, section that I'm going to be preaching on this morning is not as long as the one in your folder. Uh, I decided um, that I would cut two pages from my <laughs> sermon and leave uh, Omri for next, uh, not Omri, rather, Omri's son, Ahab. Uh, he was evil enough that he deserves his own introduction uh, separately rather than lumping him in with Omri. And I wanted to make a point using uh, just Omri uh, by himself. Certainly there's enough to, uh, to cover there and to apply. So we won't be looking uh, all the way at 34. We're just going to be looking at verses 23 to 28 this morning. Uh, as we see once again uh, the work of the kings of Israel, the divided kingdom. As you remember, the kingdom at this point in uh, time has split in two, unfortunately, because of the uh, sins of Solomon. He was the one, unfortunately, who also began that awful descent into apostasy that afflicted the people of God. In Jerusalem itself, he built temples for the worship of, of false gods for the many wives that he had. Before they had entered into the promised land, the Lord had warned not to accumulate wives, not to accumulate horses, and not to uh, seek to follow after the gods of the surrounding peoples. But this ultimately was something that Solomon had ignored, and it had led to the division of the kingdom under his son Rehoboam, Jeroboam taking the northern kingdom, and then Jeroboam refusing to allow his people to go back to the temple and worship as they'd been instructed by the Lord God, fearing that the, the kingdoms would be reunited. And so they had begun their own false worship, setting up images of God, these golden calves, and then things had degenerated as they always do. When we begin to walk away from God and his commandments, it is seldom the case that we will stop before we reach a, uh, a destructive point unless the Lord turns us around, revives us, and chastens us. And unfortunately, that didn't happen in the northern kingdom. But let's now go to the Lord who does give us the ability to understand and obey his word, and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, as I stand here today, I know I need your help. I can't divide your word or write unless you give me the power to do so. I do pray, Lord, that as I open up this word and I exposit it, that I would say nothing that is not strictly in keeping with your will for your people. You, O oh Lord, are the one who has established your word. You've grounded it. It is sure. While the grass withers and the flower fades, this word will stand forever. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that we would sit under it, not sit in judgment of it, remembering, O oh Lord, that this is your will for us. Help us to have your perspective, to have uh, your system of values, Lord. Let us have a godly worldview, and let us estimate what is good and what is evil by the light of your word. Now, Lord, please keep us awake. We know that the devil's always at our elbow when the word's being preached, and he seeks to make us drowsy or draw our minds off in every other direction, and we get grumpy, whatever, Lord. I know that this is going to be spiritual warfare for many of your people, and so I pray, Lord, that you would help them. Keep us fixed on your word, and I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Kings chapter 16 reading verses 23 to 28. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah, 
and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him, for he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri which he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There are many wonderful items to see in the Louvre in, the, uh, in Paris. Uh, most of you know that's where the Mona Lisa is. Many years ago, I was blessed uh, when I was in college to be able to go to the Louvre and to see uh, a number of things. There's actually so much there that, like many museums, after a while it becomes big, the, uh, the big rooms of stuff you uh, begin to lose the sense of wonder at seeing these things. Well, apparently one of the objects, one of the very important objects that I overlooked when I visited the Louvre, didn't, uh, didn't either didn't see it or didn't pay attention to it, was actually a black Canaanite obelisk dating from around the year 840 BC. And it's uh, variously called either the Moabite stone or the Meisha steel. The stone was discovered in the 19th century by an Anglican uh, priest by the name of Frederick Augustus Klein. He was an Anglican missionary who uh, was also doing uh, uh, archaeological work. And he discovered this stone in Dibon, now Diban, in, Jord uh, in Jordan. So that's on the east side of the Jordan River across from Israel in August of 1868. And that, of course, at the time that we are speaking of or reading of here in the Bible in the Old Testament, Jordan was Moab, the plains of Moab. That was uh, where the stone was discovered. Uh, it was very important. In one sense, it was kind of like a Rosetta Stone for the Canaanite languages because it was written in Moabite, and it was the best example of uh, a long uh, a piece of Moabite text that was ever discovered. It proclaimed how King Misha of Moab had freed the land from the yoke of Israel, but in so doing, it mentioned how the mighty warrior king, King Omri, had subdued Moab and had occupied Medaba and had built fortresses at Adaroth and Yehaz and how his sons had oppressed the Moabites for 40 years. So in this stone, which was mentioned how they you know, freed themselves from the yoke, they were no longer forced to pay tribute, forced to be a vassal people to the people of Israel, it incidentally mentioned what a mighty king Omri was. The Assyrians also knew about Omri. We found their writings that mention him. They refer to him as a mighty warrior and called Israel, the Assyrians consistently called Israel the land of Omri regardless of who was on the throne. What does that indicate? It indicates that the nations surrounding Israel were afraid of Omri. They thought he was, he was a mighty warrior king. This was, after all, a general, a man who had been a general prior to becoming a king and establishing his own dynasty. He was a successful military campaigner. He had extended the northern kingdom of Israel. He also did this mighty work of building a new capital for Israel as David had built his own capital city, Jerusalem, on land that he himself had purchased 
uh, a threshing floor and uh, a, a place for the people to gather, a place for the temple to dwell. So Omri, in this uh, mimicking of, of David, buys his own capital or future capital, and he raises it up on the hill of Samaria uh, after Shemer, the man he bought it from. Incidentally, uh, there were excavations that were done extensively on the hill of Samaria. I'm told I have not visited it myself, but you can see uh, the, uh, even the, the foundations of Omri's original uh, capital. And in 1924, when they started doing those excavations, they proved that Omri's city was the first one to be built on that location. So it was not the case that he was building on another man's work, but starting it himself. Uh, and, and one of the things that is wonderful, and I hope you know this, is that archaeology in Israel always confirms the Bible. There's a, an example, I've, I've mentioned it before, the, uh, a, an archaeologist got in great, uh, a great deal of trouble because he was searching for the original palace of David, the house of David. So uh, he took the expedient, and then his daughter followed after him, uh, she also being an archaeologist, of digging where the Bible said it was located. Lo and behold, they found it. But then the archaeological world says, you can't do that. That's not right. You're supposed to go blindly and assume that the Bible's wrong at every turn. We don't want to be out here proving that the word of God actually, you know, is true. But that's the way archaeology works in the Holy Land. Now, Tirzah had been their old capital before it was moved to Samaria. And that, you remember, had been burnt when Zimri uh, went into the citadel and he closed it up. And then he committed suicide by setting it all on fire. Uh, but Tirzah was not very well situated strategically. Samaria, on the other hand, was in an almost perfect location. It was an ideal pick. It was about 300 feet above the surrounding plain, and the plain that's in the middle of was very fertile at the time, so lots of agriculture. There were also two very important highways that passed that area, one going off towards Syria and then the intercoastal highway that went up uh, towards Phoenicia. So it was right there in the midst of trade where the caravans were already going. Merchants and traders would pass that area all the time. So it was perfect for a capital city and for trade to be established with Israel. The location also afforded easy access to Megiddo, Jezreel, Shechem, Tirzah, obviously, and then Jerusalem. They could also take the highway to Jerusalem. It afforded them trade, food, water, and all of those things easily accessible. So it was a brilliant move. And the place also was eminently defensible. It had withstood several sieges. That if you read through First and Second Kings, you'll read about these sieges. And in fact, it only fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC after a long siege. And that after 150 years or so of standing constantly in that location. In addition to conquest and building, we need to remember also that General, then King Omri, won a civil war. He united his people who were divided, and he was finally able to stabilize the northern kingdom and then establish the longest reigning dynasty in the history of the northern kingdom. He also gave the people a religion they understood, could participate in, and enjoyed. He made foreign alliances through marriage. And finally, he and his sons also made peace with the southern kingdom of Judah. They stopped fighting with them. And in fact, we're going to see several instances as we continue on in 1 Kings where the kings of Judah actually fight alongside the northern kings. Now, 
Why do I say all that? Why am I pumping up Omri, King Omri? Because I want you to understand he did all of these amazing things, and yet the Bible, as, as one commentator puts it, gave him a failing grade. And not just a failing grade, it gave him an F minus, if that's possible. In verse 25, we are told he did worse than all who were before him. Not only were you bad, you were the worst of the kings in the north. So all of those accomplishments, all of those things that so impressed the nations around them, so much so that they, they, you know, they, they didn't run him down and call him a weak king or anything. They were all impressed. The peoples in the other areas would have said, I wish our king was more like Omri and so on. And yet all of that is as nothing Nothing at all. Why? Because Omri, quoting the Bible here, walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now, obviously, looking at the character of this man, he was strong, he was intelligent, he was diplomatic, he was a great strategist, he was a builder, he was industrious, Omri, I want you to understand, this could have been a great king. He really could have, had he only been a religious reformer as well. Had it been his desire to return the people whom he was given back to the God who had brought them into the land and allowed them to go back to the temple and to participate in the, the cycle of worship that the Lord had established, had he done those things, then we might have read about a good king in the northern kingdom. But he didn't do that. He, instead of reversing the course of Israel's apostasy, he sped it up. He made it worse. Instead of building the nation up, therefore, he only made it more and more certain that that nation would fall. Now hear me, brothers and sisters. This is an incredibly important thing that our, our nation has forgotten. It is this. It doesn't matter how great and strong our leaders are. It doesn't matter how mighty our army is. It doesn't matter how economically sound we are. It doesn't matter how good we are at diplomacy. If we abandon the Lord and his word and shake our fist at him, we will be destroyed ultimately and come to nothing. Omri did as well as anyone who rejects the Lord and his word can do. And ultimately, he made his people wretched because of that. Scripture points out as we go through 1 Kings that Israel is getting further and further away from God. They started, you remember, with false worship of the true God. Now they are going towards false worship of false gods. They are going to get to the place where Omri's son Ahab, who I will not be preaching on today, will eventually marry a Sidonian woman by Jezebel, whose name is a byword for evil, and she will turn them towards the worship of Baal, their abominable demon god. He corrupted the worship of God, and it got more and more and more corrupt, and now they are starting to worship false gods. Phil Riken points out rightly, even the smallest departures from God inevitably intensifies into gigantic proportions until God intervenes with forgiveness and renewal. Brothers and sisters, we serve a precise God. 
and he gives us instructions for a reason. Why, why must we be so precise? Why can't we differ? Why can't we deviate? Why can't we, you know, fill in some blanks and erase some truths and do things the way we would prefer to do them? Make religion more, uh, I don't know, hospitable to the modern culture. Why can't we do that? Because, brothers and sisters, the Lord plots in religion not a path to our having fun in the midst of the worship service, although I hope that you do occasionally at least have fun in the worship service and enjoy uh, yourself and have joy in your heart while singing, for instance. But he plots in worship a path to the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the rituals that took place in the southern kingdom at the temple, the Passover, for instance, where the lamb, the Passover lamb was slain and the blood was, was taken, that Passover lamb pointed to Christ, our Passover, who was sacrificed for us. All of these things pointing the worshiper to their need of a redeemer. The worship was a display of the sin of the people and the need that they had for God to make atonement for those sins. So to deviate from that and to gradually get further and further away into the pagan systems of worship of the surrounding nations was to get further and further away from salvation, to become more and more damned, more and more wretched, more and more susceptible to the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what Omri did, ultimately, in making their worship worse was to make the nation decline from bad to worse. And we'll see how along with their religion, their morals also inevitably declined. And they became a people who did evil, and it became commonplace. Corruption in the government we will see under his son Ahab. Terrible corruption. It shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us. It doesn't surprise me when I see corruption within our government at this point in time, having dispensed with all of the basis for morals. You know, we call things good and evil now absolutely arbitrarily. When we say at this point in time something is good or something is evil, what are we really saying? We're saying, I like that, I don't like that. That's evil, this is good. Are you God? <laughs> Are you, do you have the power to define what is good and what's evil? No, of course you don't. Only God can do that. But they had gradually gotten further and further away just as, as we are. So the morals, we're going to see them declining. We're going to see the violations of God's law becoming more and more heinous. And it's like an avalanche building. First a few stones, and then knock a few more stones, and then eventually the entire mountain is sliding down upon the people's head until at last the prophet Hosea would declare that Israel had doomed themselves. If you would turn with me to Hosea 8.1. He's in the Minor Prophets. It's always fun to find any of the Minor Prophets, isn't it? A few, few turns of the page and you're already past them. So we're going to go to Hosea 8.1. Got to get past the major prophets. One of the keys is you find Matthew, and then the next book after that is Malachi. And then you just keep flipping <laughs> until you get to Joel, and then in front of that is Hosea. I'm going to be reading Hosea 8.1. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me. 
My God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. They had been his people. They had been his Ami. Now they are Loa Ami, not my people. They've cut themselves off. They've become like the Gentiles, and they are pursuing the things that the Gentiles pursue instead of following the instructions of the Lord. One thing we should notice, or one of many things we should notice as we go through this, I should say, is that as their sins become greater, they also become more and more dull, more and more stagnant, more and more ossified as a culture. They just keep doing the same things, but they only increase the depths of depravity they're willing to seek to uh, sink to. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, one of the best commentators on this book, described the annals of the northern kingdom as they're presented in First Kings this way. He says, they are the records of sinful men who simply repeat the sins and evil of those before them. Sin is never creative but merely imitative. Goodness has an originality inherent in it which evil hasn't got. Evil can distort and ruin and corrupt and do reruns, but it can't be original, not even scintillating. Evil carries a built-in yawn. I, I wonder if you've ever seen that because, or thought about it because we see that again and again in history. It was actually Francis Schaeffer uh, who soon after I became a Christian first pointed that out to me at least in uh, How Should We Then Live, that wonderful series that he did. Incidentally, if you ever go to uh, YouTube, instead of watching... Um, cat videos, uh, what I would recommend is actually watching How Shall We Then Live, or goat videos. They've suddenly become incredibly important to our culture. I don't understand why, but uh, it's, a, it's a series. It was broken into half-hour segments. It was designed for teaching in Sunday schools. It's a little dated. It's kind of cheesy at parts, but the philosophy behind it is good. And one of the episodes that he made was showing that as Rome declined, as it became more and more corrupt, more and more godless, more and more evil, the culture declined with it. It became decadent. And he showed how the architecture of the classical period was so much better than the cultures, uh, the, the architecture of the period where they really entered into sin and decline. The same thing happened in Greece. Their architecture also became stale. Their art became uniform and so on. People go through that creative phase and then they begin to decline. And the further they get from God, the more decline you see. And I, I don't think you have to be a genius to see that happening today. How many reboots of old cartoons can we possibly pump out? Wait, wait, let's do another live-action version of The Lion King, only this time we'll make Timon and Pumbaa uh, trans. Yeah, that'll do it. That's a winner. Or let's make a movie based on an earlier movie, based on a video game, based on a... And after a while, you're like, there is no creative spirit left in this entire country. At least none in Hollywood. Our novels, our movies, our art, our architecture are all progressively worse than the material that came before them. We knock down 
buildings that were once beautiful have now become decayed. And then we put up these wretched abominations and you look at them and you're like, <laughs> I go to Washington, D.C. I, I have crawled through the bowels of these buildings that were made in the 1930s. Uh, on the inside, they are pretty awful, but at least the outside, they had that all, you know, that neo-Greek, uh, Greco-Roman kind of, uh, it was, they were trying at the very least. Now they put up, there's, it literally, they put up things that look like egg crates or, you know, uh, like, I, I don't know, an alien spaceship from a dystopian galaxy landed over there and they made it into a, uni into a, a university or a museum or something, just these abominable things. And the sculptures that we put up, I, I, I hesitate to even call them sculptures. You look at them, you're like, is that hands or is it a snake? Or, I don't know, ice cream? The machine was left on for too long? I have no idea. You're like, how on earth? People pay thousands and thousands of dollars for things that look like they left, you know, a, a three-year-old with an erector set. And then we say, this is good. It's not good, brothers and sisters. It is nothing compared to what came before it. And we're becoming increasingly ignorant. We don't know our own history. We don't know our own civics. We know all about sex and perversity, but we know nothing about, for instance, they were, they were asking the, uh, I, I can't remember the percentage, but it was, it was incredibly low. They asked who Susan B. Anthony was, and the vast majority of American school kids had no idea. Nobody knew about the suffragettes. Nobody could tell you anything about her and so on. But enough about nations. Nations are made up of what? What are nations made up of? People. And who are we? People. We're people. What about us then? Are the things that we think about, are the things that you think about, are they great and interesting? The things that you spend the majority of your time on and doing, is it productive? Is it godly? Is it good? Is it aesthetically pleasing? Is it something that has eternal worth or at least has to it beauty? Are the things that you dwell upon, you remember that, that wonderful section from Philippians, that exhortation of Paul. It's not just me who's saying, look upon those things that are architecturally beautiful. Read those works that are worthy, those, those works that have in them the spark of divinity. Even if they were written by pagan authors, you can see the echo of, of God's creation in them. What, what did Paul write to the Philippians? He wrote this in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate. And by this he means not om, clearing our minds. He means think deeply on these things. Look at them. Get them into your mind. Understand them and then think upon them. Compare them to the word and so on. These things, he goes on, he says, which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. So are the majority of things that you spend your time on, do they fit in that category? Or are they the philosophical and cultural equivalent of junk food? If the majority of things that you spend your time with can be gone through this fast, they are of no import. They're of no moment. One of the sad things that I see is that these days, the majority of Christians, they get their theology this way. 
and anything that you can read or watch in one or two minutes, unless it is incredibly profound. Admittedly, Thomas Watson and Thomas Brooks and some of the Puritans, they can produce a sentence or a paragraph, and you go, whoa, why didn't I think of that? But these days, it's too blessed to be stressed. You know, <laughs> Find that in the Bible for me. I'm sure Paul was never stressed. <laughs> you know? Not even in the jail where I'm freezing to death. Could you send me a cloak? You know? Brothers and sisters, is it the things of eternity or the things of ticking time that we find most interesting? Are the things that you are gravitating towards, are they the things that the Bible admires and sets before us? Is God, this is the critical question, think of anything that you spend the majority of your time on and ask this, is God at the center of it? Or is it instead your own pleasure or your own ambition or your own sin? Is that at the center of the thing that occupies your time? We, we need to ask those questions now before it's too late. Phil Riken said this. It's actually in your folders. I, it's a meditation. I, I would pray that you would meditate upon it. He says, whatever else we may accomplish... God will look to see whether we have a heart for him. Earthly accomplishments have their place in life, and even the Bible acknowledges that Omri was a great builder. But God is most concerned with character and the direction of a person's heart. Dale Ralph Davis comments that here the biblical author is not saying he is ignorant of Omri's achievements. He is saying they don't matter. Then Davis asks the questions, do the passions that drive your living and doing only elicit a yawn from heaven? Are we occupying our time with things that are ultimately boring and leave us with no passion, no passion to pursue them? Uh, for Omri, what was his great passion? It was, it was dynasty building, nation building. Where did he choose to build Samaria? He built it on a rock. He built it on a hill. It's still there today. It's a great location. What did he build his dynasty on, though, his house? Apostasy. He built that on sand, and eventually, of course, it was washed away. But at least the scale of what he was doing was epic. It really was. Today, unfortunately, our level of ambition, denuded of Christianity, has sunk to the point where people don't even really have hobbies. You know, if you build a model today or complete a puzzle, you are, you're doing great in the hobby world, okay? I knew guys who used to spend, and admittedly I never understood it, would spend hours and hours and hours just tying a fly in order to stand in a freezing cold creek and catch trout and then throw them back. I didn't understand it, but it required skill and determination and learning, and they thought it was fun. They really did. We don't even do that kind of thing or pass that on to people as a general rule. It's just endless social media or gaming or talking about your disabilities as though this makes you somehow special or sexual perversions. We find our worth now by discussing how weird our sexuality is. That's where we find our, our worth. That, but brothers and sisters, do we understand really how dull that is? How puerile it is, to use a good old word? C.S. Lewis wrote this. 
And he's, he's absolutely right. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are pleased with the things of time, but we don't know true joy any longer. And true joy is something that we find only when we follow Christ. If we want, therefore, the dullness of our lives, the boredom of our lives, if we truly want those things to turn around, then we have to make the change. You have to live daring lives. You have to live bold lives. You have to live active lives. You have to live a life going in the right direction. How do we do that? Well, Jesus said it this way. He said in Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Take up your cross and follow Christ on a road that's hard, a road that's difficult, and a road above all. You know what word I hate at this point in time? I know I shouldn't. I know uh, there, there's good uses of this word, but I'm beginning to despise the word safe. Everything has to be safe. Stay inside. Don't do this. Don't do, you know. I came from the generation. We ate the food after we dropped it on the ground, you know. Uh, you, you used to scrape the, the gravel off it, and sometimes you go, oh, I didn't get that one. You know, that kind of thing. You sure, man, I think there's a dead bird. Oh, that's okay. Five second, ten, ten second rule? You know, Whatever. We rode bikes without helmets. We built jumps that were just, any mathematician would look and say, don't do that. Our parents had no clue where we were. You remember that? When did you go home? Street lights had come on. Oh, we had dinner. Do you know what? We had fun. And in the Christian world, okay, boldness is so needful today. We need to be bold in declaring our faith. We need to be bold in sharing our faith. We need to be bold in living out our faith. I read Christian biographies, okay, about men of faith, and I, I would encourage you to do them. I'm going to mention one, okay, just one of many I've read in, in my time as a Christian. It's a book called Through Gates of Splendor. It's the story of Jim Elliot and his fellow missionaries who went down to Ecuador. It's written by his wife after he was, after he was killed. I have to tell you one thing, okay? It's tragic when he and his fellow missionaries are, well, I, Andy ruins books. Go read this book. I'm going to tell you what happens. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you, but, it, but there's a tragedy at the center, uh, and you can figure out what happens. But I, I have to tell you, it's, it's exciting. It's sometimes tragic, but it's never dull. It's never dull. I have to tell you, I never wake up in the morning saying, I wonder what I'm going to do today. There's nothing to do. I'm bored, blah, blah, blah. I don't live that life. Sometimes it's terrifying whenever the phone rings after 2 o'clock in the morning. And incidentally, please, if there's a tragedy or an emergency or something, call me. I, I will have a heart attack that I, you know, after we defibrillate me, I'll be able to talk to you and we'll, we'll get that done. But brothers and sisters, the Christian life lived well is never dull. It's never uninteresting. And it has eternal value. 
I, I, I implore you, don't be an Omri. Don't try to build a, 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 your own kingdom on sand. Ultimately, follow Christ. Build for the kingdom and build on solid rock. Take up your cross like Jim Elliot and so many others have. And do not live a boring or a humdrum life. Live that life of distinction. Live a life that's full of joy as a result. Did you know the Christian life, when lived well, brings joy, abundant joy? I didn't even know what joy really meant other than my wife. You know, that, that, that was my reference for joy, but I discovered joy in Christ, that abundant life. What did Jesus say? He didn't say, these things I have spoken to you so that you will be wretched and dull and boring. No, he says this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. As Christians, we can live life to the fullest following Christ. I would encourage you, do that. Don't settle for kingships and silly cities on hills that go nowhere. And certainly don't settle for less than that. Don't settle for mud pies in the slums because you don't know what a vacation at the seaside means, as C.S. Lewis put it. Instead, follow Christ. Take up your cross. Follow him. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you are the one who encourages us to live lives of, of boldness, of bravery, of courage, of determination, lives that are full of those things that are truly beautiful. We remember that, as your servants have pointed out to us again and again, all the evil one can do is corrupt. He takes that which you made good, he twists it and says, now it's better, when in fact it's not. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live lives that aren't safe, but that they are good, Lord. I pray that we would honestly be willing to lay down our lives for you, rather than earning an entire nation or a kingdom. May it be that we are willing to follow Christ, come what may knowing that if we do so, he will lead us home to the celestial city. Let us put our faith, our confidence, our trust in him. Let us lean upon him in the everlasting arms. And we pray this in Jesus' holy